Welcome to Saga Craft. Myths, fairy tales, legends, stories comfort us, inspire us, and heal us. Please join us as we share stories, both old and new. More than anything, we are open to the story and its unfolding. At times, it may be one story told by one person. At times, it's the same story told through three different voices. In the end, we go where the story takes us, and we invite you to follow. I'm C, a writer, artist, and storyteller. I'm Betsy, a medium and teacher of mystery traditions. I'm Gabriella, an artist and practitioner of folk magic. We, we are, are magical, magical fairy godmothers, godmothers in, in training. training. This is an example of a midrash, which is something that is a tradition in Judaism in which people write some of the biblical stories or the Old Testament stories in ways that have much more embellishment and that are, things are seen from a very different perspective than they are normally. Then people get together and discuss the perspective and uh, the whole idea is you cannot change that which is written down in the Bible, whether it be the Jewish Bible or the Christian Bible, you can only add to it. You can't change anything that's already. So this is Lot. God is going about his godly business as one among many gods. His humans, however, are bickering with the neighbors about property lines. They're starting to talk trash about how great God is and how he's supreme. At first, he's flattered. He performs a couple of easy miracles, like getting old women pregnant. Not exactly a hardship for a male god. But then they push him really hard to prove that he's the end-all, be-all of deities. Concerned, God looks around. He notices that Dionysus has taken off for the islands and left a power vacuum in Sodom and Gomorrah, a place God's own people have been bitching about. So he figures he can go feign an easy stand there. At first, God thinks he'll just go impress them with his godliness. But when he gets there, they just laugh. The fact is that they're far more sexually experienced than he is and unimpressed with pregnant women. So he goes away to contemplate a long-term conversion strategy. His followers, however, have no patience and pressure him for a large-scale display of power. Eventually, God caves. He announces that he will destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. At first, people argue, which is a great relief to God, who doesn't want to do it anyway. God is pleased when they ask if he'll spare the city if they find 50 good men. He figures he's off the hook. As far as he can tell, there are thousands of good people there. But he has to put up some kind of a front, so he pushes back. Eventually, he gets them to lower the number, then sends them in to point out some good folks. They come back empty-handed, and God wonders how he grew the short straw in followers. God then sends in his angels. Surely they can find someone. As soon as they arrive, Lot, the kid from the sheep incident, runs out to greet them. God wonders why it never before occurred to him to miss Lot. He should have guessed he was in party town. God hopes the angels will stay away from that one. But no, they go home with him. God hopes Lot has changed. That evening, God sees a bunch of Lot's friends heading to his house for a party, and he gets excited. Maybe Lot really has changed. Now he has friends. But when they reach the door at the appointed time, Lot sneaks out and whispers that they should leave because he has guests. His friends think he's joking. Of course he has guests. It's a party. They shove at the door. 
God thinks this is his golden opportunity to convert people. They are joyfully gathered. Surely Lot will tell them how great he is. So he shows up in his brilliant, godly glory. Everyone freaks out. People begin to scream. Lot slams the door shut and startled. God ducks behind a tree. The party folks eventually calm down and start to pressure Lot, asking him to at least send his new friends out to meet them. Maybe they can have a beer. But he shoves his tween-aged and as yet unnamed children out the door instead, yelling, take my daughters, they have never known a man. This, God thinks, is the Lot I remember. Lot's friends, including his daughter's fiancés, leave in deep disgust. The angels, however, are now convinced that Sodom and Gomorrah truly are corrupt. They lean hard on God to destroy the area in a big show. They want Lot to witness and escape so he can report the display of power to others. God sighs deeply. Well, he thinks, I really could use more followers. This might help my image. And Lot is one of my people, so I guess this time I could spare him. God tells Lot to head for the hills. Lot refuses. WTF, thanks God, I just agreed to save you. But Lot insists he wants to go live in Zoar. Whatever, God says, just don't look back, he adds, realizing he has no stomach for anything violent and he wants them not to turn around. Lot turns and runs for the hills rather than Zoar, and God thinks, what is wrong with that man? Lot's wife, however, whose name we never apparently bothered to learn, runs around in front of her husband on the road and turns. Shit, God responds as he munches on a remarkably bland sandwich. I have to do something memorable quick. Thinking fast, God turns her into salt. Lot and his girls make it up the hill and set up camp. Once there, Lot spends several days getting wasted and impregnating his children, then makes up a story to tell the neighbors and so are. And God realizes that some people never change as he wanders off to warn the local sheep. But wait, did uh -huh. you say that God warned the sheep? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I kind of like this God. Part two. Jonah. As time goes on, God begins to get comfortable in his promotion to the one true God. There's been some initial trial and error, of course. These things never go as smoothly as one would like. But God is starting to understand the expectations and demands of his people. Though it's still hard for him to think of them as that. God is not accustomed to the idea of owning a large migrating group of humans. They are not only capable, but arguably obsessed with independent thought. They never go where he sends them and instead spend ages wandering the desert following each other's bizarre whims. Sometimes it's all he can do to keep them fed and watered. And still, he feels a bit confused by the idea that he's the one true God, particularly since it's common knowledge that there are many such gods and goddesses. But that's what they call him, and who is he to argue? He is excited that they're finally creating real relationship. His people regularly check in through prayers and dreams, and he's coming to genuinely like a few of them, especially the ones that smell good. No matter how many times he tells them to bathe, most of them take it as a metaphor or assume he's talking to someone else. Recently, God's been receiving a lot of complaints about the neighboring town, Nineveh. And this is where his current dilemma rears its golden bovine head. God wants, really wants, to live up to the expectations of his people. But the people of Nineveh are not, strictly speaking, his, even if he accepts that some people are his. 
The Nineveh residents do not go around worshiping or him or even bragging about the one true God. Most of them worship Ishtar. In truth, God's always had a thing for Ishtar, a full-figured goddess with long, thick hair, olive skin, and eyes like embers dancing on fire. God thinks it's a shame that she's in a committed three-way with her sister and Tammuz, even if it is an open relationship. She deserves better. She's so much more appealing and reasonable than the other gods and goddesses in the region. They just spend their time goading chubby people into overeating and seducing cattle off cliffs. It's bizarre. In any event, if the people of Nineveh belong to anyone and God remains unconvinced of this, it's Ishtar. And he'd never want to steal from her or destroy her things, if people can be called things. What is a god to do? Live up to the inappropriate expectations of his people and criticize the folks of Nineveh, whom he, frankly, admires for their bohemian flair? Or let his people down by ignoring their pleas? God thinks back, remembering the debacle in Sodom and Gomorrah. That was a similar situation, and while it didn't really go according to plan, and God wasn't wholly happy with the outcome, it had been navigated and certainly had some lessons to be garnered. Reflecting, God realizes his key takeaways are thus. Choose a decent human being who is motivated by things other than alcohol and incest. Don't ask human to prove anything. Just tell him or her what to do and say. Demonstrate integrity in said words and deeds. Model respect and appreciation for differences rather than bending to demands to condemn others. Respect other gods and goddesses while doing his best to serve his people. After all, the whole thing might have been avoided if he'd just flown to the islands and consulted with Dionysus directly. God considers and decides that as long as he has to do something, and he feels he does, he wants to model good behavior and demonstrate positivity and appreciation for other cultures. After giving it some thought, he realizes that he'd like to work with Jonah. Jonah's a nice, unattached young man. He has no immediate obligations. And who knows, he might find himself a nice wife, like Ishtar, on the trip. Plus, his dad, Amatai, will be happy to provide the personal resources to travel to Nineveh without undue financial hardship. God will just chat with him in a pleasant dream and everything will be taken care of. Plus, Jonah smells great. Not only does he bathe regularly, the youth enjoys enhancing his aroma with sweet smelling substances he harvests off local trees. It's quite appealing. So God appears before the boy. The youth has harvested some flax leaves and is standing over a well gazing in his reflection while using the cellulose to scrape away the odd bits of food between his teeth. Wow, God thinks, this one really is a leader in the world of personal hygiene. After inhaling deeply to see if the boy is wearing that sweet sap he likes so much, God bellows, Jonah, in his deepest booming voice. It is important to keep up appearances. Luckily for the young man, his bone-sharp incisor slices through the flax, preventing him from ripping his tooth out. He catches himself, unfortunately by the cheek, on the well's edge, then crouches down and looks around, sees no one. He creeps backwards away from the well and shaking in terror as the skin on his face blooms into a lovely purple flower. God feels terrible that he's frightened the poor boy. He wants to put him at ease. Jonah, God repeats, wanting to get to the point before anything else goes awry. 
Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim judgment upon it, for their wickedness has come before me. God always tries to remember to use his professional voice when talking with his people. God hopes that Jonah will understand that God is not angry. He just wants Jonah to do him a solid. Jonah, however, is in a state of sheer panic. He's never been one to get on board with the whole God thing and is strongly suspecting with the wee part of his reptilian brain that is still functioning that he is in imminent danger of becoming completely insane. Taking a few deep breaths, he decides to just roll with it. Sure, he responds, I love a road trip. Great, God says, he figures he's fulfilled his directives. Good human, straightforward communication, he's in his integrity and doing his best to serve his people. Now he just needs to demonstrate appreciation for cultural differences. First, God thinks, he'd like to speak to Ishtar to be sure they're on the up and up and she knows that Jonah's dropping by for a quick hello. God secretly hopes that Ishtar will throw another awesome dance party like the one she threw last time Tammuz came home. God remembers fondly how at the end of the evening they overturned all the tables and made a slip and slide on the wet dance floor. God heads to Ishtar's altar, an intricately formed statue built into a cave. He always feels bad when he thinks about her actual beauty compared to the lumpy likeness of her housed in the hillside. It's not like her at all, but she does respond immediately when you pull her from there. Jonah, however, continues to spasm and twitch for about an hour. Eventually, he decides that he may be able to cure his obvious mental illness if he takes a nice, long vacation. Obviously, the strain of puberty has been too much for him, and his aromatherapy is not working the miracles he had hoped for. Jonah goes to his dad, whom, having had a powerful dream, agrees that he should take a trip and swiftly hands him lots of cash. So Jonah decides to visit Tarshish, where he used to vacation when he was a child to reinforce his fragile sanity. The youth heads first to Joppa to catch a boat. Unfortunately, having stopped several times to run cool water over his now enormous facial bruise, he arrives an hour too late. He has missed the boat. Jonah hates that thought. If only it hadn't become an expression of failure. At any rate, he is determined to succeed, and the first step is recovering his sanity. He commissions an entire crew, complete with ship, and sets course to Tarshish. Meanwhile, God is chatting up Ishtar. He called her from her altar and she descended immediately. He handed her a bit of sap he'd collected on the way and encouraged her to spread it behind her ears, as Jonah did. Unfortunately, it smelled a bit sour and acidic. He'd have to remember to ask Jonah what that stuff he used was called. In any event, Ishtar seemed thrilled to see him. This, more than anything, makes God feel powerful. She invites him in and suggests that she slip out of something uncomfortable, noting that she prefers not to wear clothing during the six months when Tammuz is off with her sister. Good thing she's immune to thermal conditions, he remarks, being a goddess. Her half-husband does his best to ensure frigid weather whenever he's out of town. Luckily, Tammuz is fairly incompetent when it comes to temperatures and rarely manages frost, despite his significant efforts. It's difficult to keep things cold above when it's getting hot for him down below, but she doesn't like to think about that. In any event, she seems glad, very glad, that God has come to call. Ishtar, God says, trying not to do a full body check. How lovely to see you. I mean, talk with you. Thank you, God. It's my pleasure, Ishtar notes, smoothing the lack of fabric on her thigh. What can I do for you? After a moment of being lost in thought, God remembers why he's here. 
Well, I'm getting a lot of requests these days regarding your people in Nineveh. I don't know if I've ever told you how beautiful I find your city. Truly one to be proud of. And irrigation. How did you ever think of it? I really could not admire your work more. And yet, my people seem discontent. They always get that way when they've been wandering for too long. If only I could somehow get it through their head to ask for directions. Anyway, I've told a lovely young man named Jonah to visit Nineveh and let your people know that I've noticed their admirable lack of inhibitions. I called it wickedness because I remember that you told me how much you like to be wicked, he said, leaning over and casting her attentive glass while blushing and smiling seductively, and I approve. If only my people would relax and let loose more, they might be a bit happier. I want Jonah to let your people know I admire their party atmosphere. And I want to set an example of positively acknowledging other divergent cultures. In any event, I just wanted to let you know that he's on his way. If truth be told, God admits, I'd absolutely love to throw another fantastic dance party. Why, thank you, God, I'm flattered. And I'd love to have a dance party. I'll see if my people are into it. But even if they aren't, I can assure you that I am. And sending your boy to compliment our culture is such a thoughtful thing to say and do. I know I'm grateful that you're so close at hand. Ishtar replies, taking his hand and clasping it to her chest. God blushes even deeper and starts fiddling with the edge of his tunic. I, I know I've asked before, Ishtar, but are you sure you're not barren? No, Ishtar replies in a deep throaty voice, leaning in so close that God is nearly overwhelmed by the acrid scent of the sap you brought her. I am as fertile as can be. You know, I am a fertility goddess. She beams proudly, popping out her significant chest. Sighing deeply and dropping his gaze, God thanks Ishtar, kisses her on the hand, and departs. He desperately wants to look back, but that would just not feel right after the salt thing. So he leaves without seeing her crestfallen look. She's so perfect, God thinks, if only she were barren. God goes to check on Jonah to make sure the boy's not wandering the desert like his ancestors. God cannot believe his eyes when he finds the kid on a boat to short Tarshish. That's entirely the wrong direction. There has to be a way he can introduce a gene that will stop these people from getting perpetually lost. God feels bad about that thought. He judges his God impartially. He's noted that they are his people when they are doing all right, but he immediately thinks of them as those people when they are doing something creative. He vows to work on his own productivity to judge. It's important to set a good example. In an attempt to be helpful, God attempts to turn the boat around. He calls and calls upon the sea, but the best he seems to be able to do is to create a bitter storm. And the humans just row, paddling ever harder. They are apparently better at moving across the sea than God is. In fairness, he has always been a God of the desert. In any case, God recognizes that he's out of his element and vows to learn to walk on water as soon as this trip is over so this kind of thing won't happen again. Soon, the frightened sailors are each crying out to their own gods and flinging their cargo overboard. God wonders what is up with these people. They will need that cargo. And suddenly, all manner of gods and goddesses are appearing before him demanding to know what happened. God explains that it's just a misunderstanding. His human, Jonah, has commissioned the entire ship, but it is headed in the wrong direction. God wants to correct their course. 
The other gods and goddesses have received prayers explicitly requesting that the boat continue to Tarshish. In time, they all agree that the best course of action for everyone is if Jonah simply takes another vessel back to land while the rest of the group continues. Meanwhile, Jonah has passed out. This is really all too much for him. He desperately needed a vacation, and this has taken a horrible turn. The crew, fighting to stay on course, send their captain down to see if Jonah's still alive. The poor boy looked peaked at best when he hired the ship and crew, and that fainting can't be good. The captain shakes Jonah awake and suggests he call upon God for help. He doesn't understand when this only distresses Jonah further. Eventually, the crew draws lots to see who's the cause of this torrential storm and finds Jonah to be the culprit. They ask him who he is, who he worships, and above all, what he has done. Jonah tells them all about his background as a Hebrew and the events of the last few days. They make a few assumptions and conclude that God is enraged and wrathful. This very much hurts God's feelings. What must we do to make the sea calm around us? The crew members ask Jonah in a fit of terror. More depressed and, frankly, a little suicidal, Jonah replies, Heave me overboard and the sea will calm down for you, for I know that this terrible storm came upon you because of my account. God thinks this is a brilliant idea. Jonah can head the other direction as soon as God sends him another vessel. But being decent human beings, the mariners decline and row on with renewed vigor. God can't figure out if he should be happy about the integrity or sad about the lost opportunity. Then the people turn to God and pray on Jonah's account, as they generally pray to other gods. Oh, please, Lord, do not kill us either for helping this man or for heaving him overboard now. This is your fault. And they unceremoniously toss Jonah into the ocean. Thank me, God thinks, now I can help him. And God compels a giant nondescript fish who happened to be granted wishes in the area to pick up Jonah. Unfortunately, Jonah tries to fight with his marine transport, and the fish, attempting to grab Jonah by the collar, accidentally swallows him. God just rolls his eyes and creates a cavity within the fish where Jonas can live until they reach shore. The boy obviously needs a cooling down period. When Jonah discovers himself within the fish, apparently alive, he decides it's too late to save what remains of his sanity and chooses to just give in to the delusions. In a bout of comforting irony, Jonas composes a long-form poem celebrating God and his future salvation. God thinks this is cute and sweet. Plus, he appreciates both the trust Jonah has placed in him and the detailed instructions on what Jonah is looking for in his rescue. Eventually, the fish reaches shore and spews up the vacantly staring poet. God meets him on the beach, saying, Go at once to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it what I tell you. God is very proud that he remembered to use his professional voice. When Jonah gets to Nineveh, he announces, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overturned. God has no idea where Jonah got that, but whatever, he made the journey and he improvised. No harm, no foul. After all, God would like nothing more than to overturn the place at the end of their party with a complete slippery slide. Maybe Ishtar will go with him, and maybe she'll be barren. Much to Jonah's surprise, people of Nineveh believe him. They announce a fast and all wear sackcloths. God dislikes the look, but doesn't want to judge. There is no accounting for taste. And God has come to positively reinforce their culture, no matter how unattractive their dancewear might be to him. 
God is delighted when even the king puts on his dancing sackcloth and starts fasting, presumably, so he'll have a great appetite for the festivities. But then the king spends his day sitting dismally in a pile of ashes, which gives God something more to contemplate. He has to hand it to humans. They are spontaneous. Whenever he thinks he's starting to understand them, they go and do something completely unexpected. Word spreads through Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, no man or beast or flock of herds shall taste anything. They shall not graze and they shall not drink water. They shall be covered with sackcloth, man and beast, and shall cry mightily to the Lord. Let everyone turn back from his evil ways and from the injustice of which he is guilty. Who knows but that God may turn and relent. God hears this and feels very sad that the people of Nineveh have refused his party. If God has to be honest with himself, he must admit that things have seemed too good to be true with Ishtar. He shouldn't have gotten his hopes up. Fine, he decides with an inaudible sigh, he'll just go home. So he calls Jonah and tells him they're heading out immediately. Jonah completely freaks. See, Jonah shouts, you are a good and compassionate God and I want to die. God feels very confused by this compliment despair mashup and asks Jonah if things are really that bad. Jonah replies that they are, which makes God really sad. But then God gives himself a pet talk. One can't be compassionate with others if one can't be compassionate with oneself. While God contemplates the astounding effectiveness of aromatherapy and how he might support his young friend without the special sap, Jonah heads out of town where he builds a small booth and sits in the shade watching the city. God feels sad that Jonah hasn't come to terms with the lack of festivities. Clearly, he had gotten his hopes up too, but the people of Nineveh just aren't in the partying mood. So God sends Jonah a big plant, which grows beside his booth and shades the parts of him that the booth doesn't cover. Not only that, it smells really good. God knows how Jonah likes good smelling things and harbors secret hopes that this new plant will one day be a boon for aromatherapy. Jonah loves his new plant friend. God is so excited that he has done something good to make Jonah happy that he decides to send him more friends. This time he sends Jonah a worm. At first, Jonah seems excited, but later he becomes devastated when the worm eats his plant and God wishes that he thought to send along worm food. God sits with the grieving Jonah through the night. The next day, God tries to cheer Jonah up by making the wind dance, but Jonah only starts screaming again that he doesn't want to live. God is sorry that he hadn't noticed how fragile the youth was before inviting him on the trip. Next time, God thinks, I'll pick someone who's a bit more flexible. The poor boy is taking it very, very hard. God is deeply concerned. He goes to Jonah to commiserate. You loved that plant, God says, but the worm ate it. And I loved the people of Nineveh, but they didn't want a dance party. Neither of us got what we'd hoped for, but we did have nice experiences. You got to hang with the plant, and I got to hang with Ishtar. We both got to hang with the people of Nineveh and see their alternative attire. Feeling tender, God forgets his professional voice. And at least we're in this together. By the way, God goes on, I'd appreciate that lovely fragrant sap you use. What is it? Frankincense, Jonah replies. Thanks, God responds. I'll have to remember to gift it to someone special. 
So God and Jonah sit outside of town, holding hands until the sun goes down. When they both feel better, they get up and head home, where Jonah grows many more plants, and God blesses them with lovely fragrances before throwing a huge dance party for all his people and Ishtar. That was quite an epic story. I would want more stories like this. And I read the Bible a lot more. Because <laughs> I presume so many other people, this would be giving many non-Christian folk and non-Jewish folk a really nice way of an intimate view and a current view of God, of, of that God from those books. I loved it as well. And I found myself so curious about what God was going to do. And then so curious about what the humans were going to do. But as the story unfolded, it made me understand ordinary reality so much more. <laughs> and the, I loved the idea of people praying to different gods and the different gods responding and it just became so clear to me how some situations seem so incomprehensible and that may very well be what's going on. So thank you, that was amazing. What strikes me, one of the things that really strike me here has to do with how almost political God has to be to please his followers and almost going against what he would intuitively want to match the expectations and to remain in the image that his people have sort of molded him to be, which is interesting on many levels. So I feel much more tender-hearted about him. And also I have a little bit of sorrow for him. I feel that he shouldn't be outside of joy and fun and how he would want things to do somehow with the, the concept of free will that he's somehow outside of, even though he made the world at least part of it that he resides over and it has completely taken on its own form as worlds do and as people do. So the world's changing in the image the world believes it needs to be while God is observing as it's going further and further away from him and harder for him to connect with. But he keeps trying. And unlike some of the stories about gods and their humans in other cultures, this God keeps trying, he keeps getting formed in other cultures, I can think of some of the Native American cultures, the gods just destroyed the people and started over. So this is a, a god who's listening and responding and reacting. And I think yearning for something, but not, not able to make it mesh together. <laughs> in my mind what God is yearning for can't actually happen. Well, can't actually happen at this time. I think that he would like to see humanity grow up a little. 
Yeah, I mean, and the difficulty of humanity having the time or the opportunities to evolve and to grow, whether in their actions and their morality or their consciousness or whatever direction we might want to look at, God gets shaped along with that. I think of some of the stories of the tapestries of life, and it just seems like with the actions, the the desires of God and the plans of God and the implementation by the humans in these kind of strange forms, it's a weave that takes form and keeps going and it's very difficult to double back. It seems as though it creates a momentum of its own. I think under this context of God creating the world and people taking what they think is reality and making it entirely their own, not understanding the full laws of reality and creation and destruction and natural change without having a concept of that. To them, if God were to do what he truly wanted that was outside of that spectrum, that would either be his destruction, possibly, would they completely stop believing? That would just break the world apart which is why I think he won't do what he wants to do. He won't go outside of the oaths he's created or made. He can't go outside of the restraints that people are now living in. It would be my hope that he would pull them along. But you know, that doesn't really happen. Yeah, sorry. Oh, sorry, yeah, it, it's, it doesn't happen that way. People will follow the leader, follow blindly. I mean, this is very much a story about blind following, too, without questioning. And it makes me wonder if one of the lessons that God ultimately gets out of this is to become more elusive. <laughs> Give up. <laughs> to, protect, <laughs> to protect himself by not having such a direct contact. Well, in my mind, so in the Bible, they're destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed. And in my mind, he doesn't destroy them. He simply moves everyone when nobody's looking. That's the whole don't look back so that he can just go and move them to a different location. <laughs> so in my mind, he's not totally blindly following, but you know, it is just my mind. And so that's the interesting thing to me about doing a Midrash and about this kind of exercise it's so revealing of what I think of God. I think that God has a good heart and wants everyone to love each other and is just trying to make us happy. And at what cost? And I see people, all people with all gods, not just the Christian God, but everybody with whatever God they choose to interact with, putting so much of their own values and perspectives on that deity. And I don't know that there's a way out of that because for for any gods, for any divinity to be able to interact with people, they have to meet them somewhere. There has to be a place where we can agree on something. I've always felt that God had a sense of humor and I'm much more comfortable hearing this version of the story because he certainly does. Well, and also I love, I love what comes of it at the end. I, I love that his, one of his joys is scent and the natural world and plants and by that synergy, he receives some of his own blessings and can enjoy them. 
And if he didn't meet Jonah, he wouldn't have experienced his lovely scent. I'm really struck by the form of the story, the Midrash. And in your story and your God, it made me aware personally how difficult it is for me as a writer to kill off my characters, <laughs> to put them through hard things. And so my stories start and then they meander like the people meandering through the desert, partly because it's, I can see that dilemma that this God goes through. And anyway, I was personally struck by that. And so part of what I'll be taking into the next week with me is I need to give my characters more free will <laughs> and be willing to see where they go with it. And that helps me to look at my fellow humans, I think, also with a more tender eye. So I thank you for that. I think what I'll take with me into the week is how much of the stories we hear might lie in the untold parts and how much value and richness and song is in between, is in between and in the untold parts. I feel like there's a whole world there. And when it's brought into the surface, it always feels very natural, like it truly belongs there. Because this story, as you told it, I have no doubt unfolded in this way and continues to unfold. It's unfolding still. There are layers and layers and layers. And I so appreciate that. So I think I'll be looking within the story of my days and my week and seeing what's hidden there and what, what should be revealed, what should be brightened up, what should be made lighter, not taking things so seriously. And when that happens, sometimes it opens up for a whole other way of seeing the situation, seeing ourselves and seeing the people in it, no matter how frustrating or annoying those stories or real stories may be at the time. So that when we tell it later, it's a delightful retelling, a delightful weaving of what happened. Thank you. That was beautiful and very, very joyful. Certainly made me laugh quite a bit throughout. Yeah, I think that I will be thinking about how I rise and fall to expectations, about how other people's expectations influence me, or even my own expectations influence me. And how can I do a better job of holding better expectations for myself and of becoming impervious rather to other people's expectations as much as possible?